You can hear me? Yes. yes. I can't hear you, but... Oh, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I don't need to. <laughs> yeah! That's my secret, Cap. I've never been listening. Not just every now and then, Ella's like, hmm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's bullshit. And I'm just like, oh, I, I guess maybe, yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess you're right. <laughs> she said it with confidence. Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. <laughs> Ella's waving to the to the audience. Hello. Um, Hi, friends. Today, we're going to be learning about a science topic. We're going to be answering a science question, and then we're going to be hopping into a miscellaneous topic. My name is Tom, and today's main topic is magnetoreception, or the sense of magnetism in animals. Oh. Like <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Cool. Wait, have I? No. Yeah, cool. <laughs> We've only done like 20 episodes of this. <laughs> How am I supposed to react? Am I supposed to be honest or am I supposed to lie about uh, it? The... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> should, if you say it again, I'll give an honest reaction. Go on. And today's main topic is magnetoreception. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Oh, hmm. um, it, it was just oh. the the density of that small sound, like the amount it told me, was just so powerful. <laughs> I'm Ella, and today's question is: Well, we're gonna solve a problem. Can you guess what that problem is? Wh what? World hunger. Like a uh, math problem? We're gonna do some peace. homework. Uh, <laughs> um, what the meaning? Wait, of we're life going is... to solve. Okay, we're gonna solve the trolley problem. Oh. We're gonna conclusively this breaking news. This podcast will finally yeah, be the one today. We're oh doing boy. it. I can't wait. No, we're not. We're gonna look. We're gonna we're gonna answer it though and see what what we get out of it. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so curious. I'm very curious the say. science of this. Yeah. My name's Caroline, and this episode's miscellaneous topic is going to be about Hitchbot, the hitchhiking robot that made its way across what? Canada. What? Yeah. Wow. I've never what? heard of this. <gasps> no oh, that's good okay because it's a really it's a really really wholesome story so i can't wait to share it with you guys okay, i'm so amazing. excited amazing oh i'm sorry i mean sorry say it again one more time we'll say that <laughs> <laughs> just, funny, just, just 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 so we can get it no say, say, say it again say it again comedy comedy <laughs> okay and scene <laughs> So uh, compared to the other senses, like vision and hearing, uh, the sense of magnetism seems pretty straightforward. It's like just just point north. Like you you take a compass, you put it in an animal, you got magnetoreception. Bing, bang, bong. And maybe it feels this simple because compasses are an extremely old tool that has basically remained unchanged. Um, do you know how old the compass is? Ooh. Uh... The 1300s. I was going to say 1400s. That's really interesting. So you're, you're wrong and you're right. So th the first compasses that we have records of come from 200 BCE. Wow. Whoa. And so that's during the Han Dynasty in China. Um, but it was primarily used for divination at the time, not for navigation. 
Mm -hmm. um, and there are also theories that artifacts from the Olmecs in Mexico were used as compasses. And if that's true, then those carbon date all the way back to 1400 BCE. Whoa. Whoa. But Whoa. it was around 1100 CE that compasses were first used for navigation. Oh. Um, so first by the Song Dynasty in China and then quickly the rest of the world. Um, so that's when, you know, ships start traveling and then compasses are used for navigation. And nowadays it's become something that um, for some reason I remember, I don't know if this is just me, I remember a lot of McDonald's Happy Meal toys having compasses. I, I don't know if that's just me, but the point is just that like compasses function the same way in a toy as like on a boat navigating the world it's just a, it's just a, a thing that spins it points north yeah but i wouldn't leave uh the captain of a ship with a mcdonald's happy meal compass and hope for the best though <laughs> i would like to see what happened but i don't think it's a good idea even if it's a peter pan captain hook compass he was a captain <laughs> makes you think it's good enough for that captain um but what i found really interesting is that in spite of all that, in spite of the compass being so old and so easily understood, the earliest published theory that animals could sense magnetic fields was only in 1882. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've been using compasses to navigate for like a thousand years at that point. And then finally someone was like, what if migrating birds do also? Um, and what's doubly interesting is that there was a ton of pushback on that. There's a really telling quote from ornithologist Fritz Brown, who said at the time, quote, These theories are comparable to an individual of a blind species trying to come up with a theory of light. The assumption of a specific sense in migratory birds, which is essentially different from that in humans, is, for epistemological reasons, unacceptable. <laughs> oh, come on. Like, really got into That's, that, it's such, it's such a bad look on scientists to be like, this could never, ever be the truth. Obviously, yeah, I, it's a great even, point. even if it, it turned out yeah. that it was the truth, but even if it hadn't, it's just like not a good look, you know? Don't don't just shut down an idea like that. As yeah, I mean, it's just, it's fancy words for basically saying impossible, mm -hmm. um, yeah, which is yeah. also, it's an amazing science burn, like epistemologically unacceptable. I'm going to start saying that in my day to day. <laughs> Someone asked me to do something around the house, like go and do the dishes. Like, Epistemologically unacceptable. <laughs> I was gonna say that's what like uh, a bad scientist would get like a tattoo of, like Ooh, on their back yeah, instead of like yeah. broken or something. It's like epistemologically unacceptable. Oh my god! Don't even tempt me. <laughs> don't even tempt me, Tom. <sighs> If anybody else out there wants to do that, though, send us the photos. If you no, 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 please no. don't do that. No. Please do not encourage people to get tattoos unless it's of me. <gasps> <laughs> Sorry, that addendum was just so quick. You were just like, well, actually, maybe. Um, but basically, the point of what he's saying is that humans don't sense magnetism. Why would a bird or why would any animal, right? And magnetism is, is, you know, it's a device. It's not a sense. Like, what is the point of imagining something so different? And obviously, there is a point to that. And, and that's sort of like the key to this topic is that the truth is magnetoreception does happen. And he's right that it is different. But that's exactly what makes it worth studying. That's what makes it so interesting. So uh, I want to start with this story uh, because this was the moment when I was researching where I was like, oh, I know nothing about magnetism. I thought I understood this. I am wrong. 
Uh, and what I learned was a riddle about bacteria. So uh, do you guys remember organelles from biology class? Yes, yeah. Tom. <laughs> I'm literally a biologist. No, what, go on, tell, tell me what an organelle is. <laughs> They're just the, the organs of a cell, basically. They're the little... <laughs> actually, Ella, what is, you could probably explain it better, but, you know, there's you got the mitochondria, the powerhouse do of it. the cell. Oh, oh, I feel no. so stupid. <laughs> Wait, is that, like a, is that like a trope in such a uh, trope microbiology? To, yeah. Oh, man. Oops. <laughs> Is that a faux pas? Um, You're going to be banned from the biologist clubs now. Sorry. Oh, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm basic. So <laughs> there are some bacteria that have specific organelles called magnetosomes that create mm. tiny iron magnets. They're like nanometers in size, just like for reference when we're talking about like organelles. Are they just, bit, are they just like chains of iron? together yes yes it's, a, it's an iron compound okay um and what's really interesting is is because they are like inside of the cell and they're they're magnetized they actually group together in like a line mm, nice it's really it's really fascinating to see and and so th they group together they form this magnet and they align to magnetic north like a compass but the riddle is why would they do that like with migratory birds Right, this makes sense because mm -hmm. you need to know where north is to navigate. But what use does a tiny bacteria have for knowing the cardinal directions? Ooh. Oh, um, is it for like resource finding? Finding if it knows where it's been before, it knows like where new to go. I don't know. That's, that's an interesting off. thought. Yeah, I feel like the world of a bacteria is not nearly so complicated. I feel like for the that's most true. part, they're dealing with like chemical mm -hmm. gradients in terms of like what they can perceive oh yeah that makes sense yeah i have no idea so the answer is the bacteria don't use their compass to go north south east or west they use their compass to go up and down because the earth's magnetic field is three-dimensional okay i guess yeah that makes sense uh-huh i've never thought about it that way before but it does yep. make sense so the Earth's magnetic field pulls towards the poles. It pulls towards the North Pole. And it doesn't just like run parallel to the surface of the Earth. It also pulls downwards into the Earth. Is that, is that if that image of um, like lines coming up and over yeah, yeah, the top exactly. of the Earth and into the like crown of the Earth and down? It sort of looks like um, a donut with just like a tiny hole, but the hole is, mm -hmm. is the North and South Pole. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, the magnetic pole isn't just North, it's also down into the ground. Okay. And so this dip in the vertical direction is called magnetic dip. Um, and it's not just bacteria who know about it, but also pilots have to deal with this. Oh. Which also sounds like the setup to a bad joke. It's like, what do bacteria and pilots have in common? They, they both have to worry about magnetic dip. I'm really fun at parties. That um, was honestly like on par with what we expected from you with that joke, Tom. I'm not going to lie. Oh, great, Tom's great, like, this cool. is a bad joke. And we're like, it's a Tom joke. It's a Tom joke. Yeah, we're <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, according to the International Civil Aviation Organization's um, online website, which they call the Skybrary, <laughs> they say, quote, magnetic dip causes the aircraft compass to give erroneous readings during banked turns when the magnetic detector picks up the vertical component of the magnetic field. Oh, 
okay. to counter this, magnetic compass systems typically include a turn cutout, which cuts the feed from the detector to the compass gyro when the angle of the bank exceeds a specific amount. So it's something that that pilots have to worry about happening. Like it's 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 a thing that they don't want to happen. But in the world of the bacteria, magnetic dip is not a problem. It's basically the whole point. Mm. And so in this chemical soup of the world of the bacteria, heavier sulfurous chemicals will sink to the bottom and oxygenated chemicals will float to the top. So being able to move up and down allows the bacteria to get get some sulfur, then get back up, get some oxygen just by moving down and up or north and south in the northern hemisphere. And the evidence to support this is that in the same species of magnetotactic bacteria, they will swim north in the northern hemisphere and they'll swim south in the southern hemisphere. So they're always swimming downwards. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And what's also interesting is that, you know, we've we've talked about this sense of down before, right? In the um space babies episode ella i don't know if you remember we talked about how most animals have like the same inner ear vestibular system for knowing which way is down but at the scale of the bacteria that that wouldn't work right Mm -hmm. that that crystal would be basically the size of the bacteria and also the bacteria is wobbling around and so like on the nanometer scale magnetism is a more reliable stand-in for gravity ah okay which is that makes sense in my head then. yeah yeah that's so interesting the, the these things work at different scales which is kind mm-hmm. of funny this is a thing in all physics right where things start to break apart at bigger and smaller scales um but most animals obviously don't live on the nanometer scale and when we leave that scale uh magnetism gets even more strange so i'm curious if y'all have heard this story before have you heard that dogs poop facing north no no <laughs> no I don't, so, um, I don't believe it already. Good. But if it's true, it's one that I'm definitely going to take to parties with me. It's not true. So. Don't. <sighs> so when this study came out, it hit obviously a lot of headlines. Um, it's obviously a very fun fact. But what, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to ruin that fact and then we're going to make it fun again <laughs> because it's incorrect in an interesting way. Um, so Ella, you had a good intuition on this. And when I told my friend this fact, she was like, I don't I don't think that's true. Like my dog Twig doesn't doesn't do that. Um and and both of you aren't wrong because there are some important stipulations to that study that they list and one of the best parts about this study is that they share so much of this process and this data. It's really amazing. They have a table of every dog, uh their breed, their age and how many times they peed and pooped for the study. No. Oh, and they have their names and whether or not they were a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> One entire column of that of the table is just like good boy, good boy, good boy, good, good boy. boy. Good boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all bad boys were excluded from the uh, uh, <laughs> from the collecting the data, which was none of them. Which was none of them. <laughs> um, so the paper says, "quote We measured the direction of the body axis in seventy dogs of thirty-seven breeds during defecation." Parentheses. <laughs> 1,893 observations and urination. 5,582 observations over a two-year period. What? This is, I mean, it's a good sample size. It's just... I was going to say. Why? Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. Who sat down and got the funding for this study? 
you know? I mean, I will say, uh, dogs are gonna be peeing and pooping anyway. We might as well measure it, you know? Funsies. In, in the scheme see of what things, you see. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I've been measuring my poops. Anyway, so um, <laughs> there are some, lots of great images in this where like they show how they measure the angle of the dog and they have like this compass and the dog. Um, I'll be sure to throw them in the Discord. But what's interesting is that in the procedure for the experiment, the dogs were all brought to a big open field that was free from power lines and highways. So this is obviously very different from how most people take their dogs out. Mm -hmm. And what's even more interesting is that this north-facing pooping behavior was only statistically significant when the magnetic field wasn't unstable, which is not so, something I'm going to pretend that I knew could happen before reading this, that the magnetic field could be unstable. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Yeah, so apparently throughout the day, the amount of magnetic declination, the, the dip that we just talked about, can fluctuate by 0 0.016 angular degrees. Okay. Which seems minuscule, mm -hmm. but according to this paper, this changing angle was only stable enough to cause dogs to poop facing north 20% of the day. Otherwise, it would be completely random. Okay. Sounds like they don't poop facing north. Right, which is which is the case. And, and you know, to, in your day-to-day -day life, there's like a million stimuli for dogs to, to, to poop however way is more convenient for them, right? Visual stuff, like where their owner is probably, like so many number of things. So, okay, I have a, I have a, a working yeah, theory yeah. then. Um, working hypothesis that this was something that maybe wolves, um, like the ancestors of dogs, oh. had it had stronger, and it's and through breeding out we've probably bred that kind of thing out of them because it's not necessary for them for whatever reason it was before it's no longer now. I That's like really that. interesting. Yeah, let's do a study. But <laughs> I have two hey, cats. What you can you wanna... provide? <laughs> I can I can measure the direction of their poop. <laughs> Happy to do that. Um, but honestly, I find it more amazing that this happens in such a specific circumstance, right? Like if a study showed that like dogs pooped in random directions, it'd be like, okay. If if a study showed that dogs always poop north, I think that would be fun, but it's like, okay. But if a study showed that if dogs have no distractions in an open field and the magnetic dip is stable within a decimal of a degree, then a dog will be like, north sounds good. Like okay. that's endlessly interesting to me. It, right? is, it is strange. It's just it's hard for me to get like be enthusiastic when I'm like, why? What did the authors of the paper say? Like, was the re like kind of relevance of the study other than mm. the pursuit of knowledge, which is a valid thing? Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, the sense of magnetoreception in different clades of animals is something that's interesting because we, you know, we see it obviously in birds a lot. Yeah, and I mean, we're gonna get into it a bit more when we talk about birds, but basically, it's just wondering if it exists at all and to what extent, mm -hmm. because like to your point, Ella, this seems like it's like, it's, it's not like a primary motive for the dogs. It seems like it's like a secondary, tertiary, even like quartary yeah, like exactly. method where like, it, if you like remove every other sense, like there's like this minuscule magnetic sense. And I mean, that, that speaks to sort of, is there an evolutionary story to this, right? Yeah, like, that's like, what I'm thinking. Like, it's a vestige of something. Like it's not very strong. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I, I find that, 
I find it more interesting in this stipulation, the fact that like dogs are sensitive to the the stability of the magnetic field it is is more interesting to me than 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 just being like let's point north right because yeah. it shows that it shows that they are both sensitive to it but also not always focused on it mm. so it's it's a really i don't know i think it's a great interesting question and um it obviously it well, obviously to your point raises a lot more questions um and so the researchers say in their paper um quote the newly introduced animal model, parentheses, dog, <laughs> paradigm, parentheses, alignment during excretion, and parameter, parentheses, relative declination change, open new horizons for biomagnetic research. So uh, you heard it here, folks. Set your Google alerts for alignment during excretion. <laughs> that's the new science buzzword. Keep an eye out. It's going to pop off. Um, oh, that's the other thing. To your point, Ella, is that like pooping is uh, a very basic behavior right you know i don't want to cast a big brush and say that like some behaviors are more primitive than others but it is a it's a basic i mean it animal is function. it literally is <laughs> like yeah. incredibly primitive and so it's so interesting that it's tied to to this right mm -hmm. do we know if any other animals show this behavior when pooping or is it just in dogs well i didn't get to look super extensively i saw there was mm -hmm. one paper on um alignment during excretion for panthers oh. um sorry leopards uh i'll throw that study in the show notes which i feel like one of these studies was easier to do um and i think it would have been with dogs yeah. i don't envy those uh those researchers too much mm -mm. Mm -mm. but yeah i mean as we're gonna see like magnetic research is is relatively late compared to a lot of things so there is i mean i said it jokingly that alignment during excretion was gonna be a hot topic but I mean, that leopard pooping study came out in 2022. So anyway, that's enough for this episode. I think it's time we move to behaviors that are more complicated than pooping. Uh, and back to the animal that started this all, which is migrating birds. And bird migration is something that we've known about for like thousands of years. It's actually mentioned in Homer's Iliad, which is fun. A little shout out to birds. Um, and Today, we know, like, the true extent of, like, how far these birds are going. Uh, the longest migration we know of is done by the Arctic Tern, and it travels 15,000 kilometers uh, or around 9,000 miles to get from the Arctic Circle to the Antarctic Circle. Wow. Wow. And we know that these birds can use the magnetic field of the Earth to help them migrate. But what I want to ask y'all is how do these birds sense the magnetic field? Um, I have no clue. Is it something in their brain? I went for bones in my head. That's really so. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, that's the, I think that's all we've got for you, Tom. Yeah, I'm not, I honestly have <laughs> yeah. no idea. No. Yeah, those are, I think those are, those are, those are good hunches. Yeah. Nobody knows. Oh, uh, you we don't, don't know how know. it works. Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't have the answer. Uh, I don't okay. have the answer. No one does. <laughs> Okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> as, as one paper from 2018 puts it, quote, the mechanism underlying magnetoreception has not been clearly established in any species. Wow. Oh, wow. That's so strange. Like, yes. that is something we've known about for such a long time, and they know, yeah. they're like, mm, no idea. Well, the thing is, we, we, we haven't known about it for a long time. So I, I want to clarify that, that big statement, uh, first of all, because, you know, 
I wouldn't say we're completely in the dark about it. Mm -hmm. So I want to clarify it. We do know for certain that animals like birds do sense magnetic fields. Like we, we know they sense it. There, there's been a number of behavioral experiments on birds that show they're affected by magnetic fields. Um, and they use it at least in part in migration. Maybe not entirely, but it does affect it. Uh, one of my favorite experiments, they, they literally taped a magnet to the beak of a bird, which I just love because I love the idea of like, you, you put a Disneyland magnet on a bird and it just goes like, where the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? And there's even some studies that show that we can measure changing brain activity for changing magnetic fields in birds. So we know that they sense it. We know that it's something that happens in their brains. But as for like the physical mechanism that causes this, we haven't proved it conclusively. And there's a number of reasons for this. So the first is that magnetism is an invisible field that passes through us, uh, which not only makes it hard to study, but it makes it hard to know where to even look for it. Because mm. the organ or the sensation, the measurement could happen literally anywhere in the body. Mm -hmm. Our hunches for where a magnetosensor could be include, quote, the beaks of birds, the brains of sea turtles, the tummies of honeybees, that's a direct quote, no. uh, and oh. the nasal passages of rainbow trouts. Interesting. Yeah, which also makes a great Dr. Seuss book about this research, <laughs> about where it could be. But I, I mean, it's true. It, it, it's, it, it really is just like a mishmash of like where it could be. And the, the second reason it's so elusive is the fact that the first solid experiment on magnetoreception in animals, in birds, was only in 1965. Oh, wow. Like, okay. We are four years away from landing on the moon and we haven't put a magnet on a bird yet. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it, I mean, it doesn't necessarily even have to be like a single place either, right? That's the, it could that's be the, like yeah. cellular, like in every cell kind of, or like many, yeah, like yeah. Uh -huh. in many different cells around the body have like a specific reaction, which like point snore for exactly. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and there's also, and we'll, we'll get into sort of like the leading hypotheses right now, but the main theory is that there's actually two different mechanisms at least, one for the strength of the field and one for the direction. Oh. And so it's, mm. there's a lot of ways that it could manifest and it makes it very hard to find. Uh, one paper also pointed out that it's extra hard because iron is like an essential element for animals. Yeah. Um, it's like it's just everywhere in our bodies. And so one scientist compared it to trying to find a needle in a needle stack. <laughs> it's just like, where I do like we look? <laughs> but today we do have a lot of theories, but there's still a lot of contention between them. Uh, there's a really great summary of the literature that was just published two months ago. No way. Uh, called Myths of Magnetosensation uh, that goes over sort of modern theories and their drawbacks. I'll be sure to throw it in the show notes. Um, but there's two leading theories when it comes to birds, at least. The first is that there are small magnetic crystals, sort of like the ones we found in bacteria, um, in the beaks of birds that help it measure the magnitude of the magnetic field. And then the second theory is how they measure the direction. And it's a bit more intuitive. Uh, we can all say it together on three because we all know it, obviously. And it is one, two, three, the quantum eyeballs. Oh. Well, I'm sorry, what did you guys say? Oh, so, uh Ooh, you you also uh, said it right. I, I think there was just a, a delay. I, I, I said it was, oh, there yeah. was a delay over I, the Zoom. I can't believe oh, okay. you. I my camera froze. Come on. Oh. <laughs> but, you, but you had it. You had it as well, right? Quantum eyeballs. You'll hear it in the recording. Yeah, yeah. you'll hear it. Yeah. I think you actually said it before I did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if anything, I did. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to do my best to explain this quickly. Uh, we should do a full quantum episode another time. I really want to. Yeah, but... I'm going to leave that to you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ella, did you want to... I know you, you, you're you so great at explaining organelles. Do you want to explain how quantum eyeballs might work? Yeah, all right. So, no. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I honestly thought you were going to commit to it for a second. I know, I, like, I wasn't. I don't, know. <laughs> don't have it in me. Well, we'll be, definitely we'll do a quantum episode. Um, but the idea is that I had to read so many papers to try to get this like four sentence explanation down. <laughs> um, so basically when a photon of light hits the eyeball of a bird, it hits these special proteins in the eye that are called cryptochromes and they split in half, uh, because of the energy of the photon and they enter one of two discrete states that are unknown, which is what makes it quantum. So it's like, it could be state A or state B. And in this sensitive state, it becomes hypersensitive to magnetic waves. And those waves affect which state it's going to more likely be in, A or B. And so that ratio of this protein being in state A or B measures the magnetic field in a predictable way. Oh boy, you're gonna have a tough time when you do a quantum episode. To be honest, Tom, that was that was hard going for me. Kind okay, of get so, what you're saying. Thing in back of eye split mm-hmm. by light by sunlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thing in back of eye could split into one of two things, and magnetism impacts which one of the two things it splits exactly. into. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. How sure. has nobody thought to just like? get these things from a bird's eye and just see what happens. So yeah, they, they've, they've recent studies have been able to show this ah. magnetic effect of these proteins outside of an animal. So this is all, this is all quite fresh then. Oh yeah. 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 This is, this is like active research. Um, you know, they, they, there's research going into double checking the like genetic output of these in, in birds. There's uh, research going into like the physical elements of this, like the, the mechanisms mm. of it. Um, but it's all still a theory. There hasn't been a silver bullet proving that this mechanism is all happening. Yeah. But it's 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 a it's a strong theory and it's an interesting theory. Does that mean if a bird closed its eyes, it wouldn't know which way to go? Well, so that's actually there was a really interesting study where they showed bird navigation is affected by the color of light that they're in. Huh? And their sense of direction gets messed up if they're missing that blue component of light that is found in sunlight. Has nobody thought to, you know how they blindfolded bats? Has nobody thought to do that to birds? Is that why when they put I'm hoods sh- on falcons and stuff, they don't know what they're <laughs> like? So, they, so they, don't, they don't find magnets. Yeah, so they don't. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd be stealing phones left and right. Um, <laughs> but uh, as one researcher put it, quote, Maybe it's a kind of shadow on top of whatever else you would be seeing as a bird, but what exactly the bird is seeing, we do not know uh, because we cannot ask the bird. Um, and we can't ask birds um, until today. Uh, guys, we have a special guest on the episode. Whoa. It's a European robin. Oh, thank you. You're, you're, you're too kind. Um, so I, was, I want to ask you, when you sense magnetism, is it like something that you can see or... I don't see how that's relevant. Um, oh, you you can't say that. You can't say that. Oh, my God. European Robin's famously incredibly racist. Oh, my God. 
All right, uh, you know, I, I've had enough. Can we, can we kick him from the call? God. Wow, we... these days, huh? My God, we can cut that out, right? No, I mean, we Sorry, should, we, we I... don't, we don't censor on this podcast. I mean, that's a great point, you know? Um... <laughs> sorry, I should I should have vetted that Robin first. I'm so sorry. I didn't. Yeah, it's really bad on your part to just let any kind of bird in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's one of those episodes. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, the point the point of all of this is that in many ways, Fritz Brown was actually totally right when he said that this idea of magneto reception was like a blind species trying to figure out light like magnetism is, is this weak invisible signal that passes through us constantly and so it's no wonder that it's tricky to study right we, ha we have no intuition for it and our current leads have us looking into quantum proteins but because it's so strange um there's a lot to learn from embracing the mystery of it all um, as researchers Lower and Baslinski put it, many questions and problems remain, surely enough to keep researchers in magnetotactic birds busy for a long time. Um, except I uh, purposefully misread that quote. The quote was actually, many questions and problems remain, surely enough to keep researchers in magnetotactic bacteria busy for a long time. And so if <laughs> there, there are still questions about bacteria, there will surely be enough to keep uh, biologists busy for a long time. Yes. Oh, wow. oh, amazing. You know, scientifically, we got a late start looking into magnetism, uh, but mm -hmm. that means there's a lot of interesting new answers left to find. Uh, I want to end with, there's the authors of that paper that was published two months ago, uh, Nymph and Keys. I think they put it best when they ended their paper by saying, quote, if we are to unravel the mystery of magnetosensation, creativity and intellectual flexibility will be indispensable. After all, biology has defied expectation on more than one occasion, which yeah. is an understatement. Yes. Aww. Absolutely. I like that. It's weird. Magnets. But, magnets, weird, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Everythingers, get out there, do some experiments on some birds. <laughs> Find some poop angles. <laughs> that we can all do. Today's question is an ethical moral question and it yeah, is do you want to ask us the official question it it's the trolley problem well i was going to ask you if you know what it knew what it was first <laughs> i always remember the scene from the good place where they yeah talk about it and it's like them like acting it out in real life and just mm. yeah um and all of the variations of it is like just gone through this awfully traumatic thing and then he's like so why don't we try it, but with children instead? <laughs> Good, lovely. I mean, that is a great point. It is, it is, it's violent. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So the first trolley problem was scenario was proposed by British philosopher Philippa Foote in 1967. And this is how it was phrased. Oh, wow. The driver of a runaway tram, which he can only steer from one narrow track onto another. Five men are working on one track and one man on the other. Anyone on the track he enters is bound to be killed. If asked what the driver should do, we should say, without hesitation, what would you say? Change the course, hit the one guy would be Tom. my answer. Yeah, if I'm entering the world of this hypothetical, then yes. I, I, think, I think the answer is, is divert it to the one person. You know, I don't want to 
fucking be a pedant. Although I thought this question is basically that is mm-hmm. is, is a, a father for pedants. But like for me, the thing has always been like in a real world situation, you don't know for certain that like <sighs> yeah. these things will happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no clue how you're going right? to respond. You're not, to that you're not looking at that thing and being like, oh, this will definitely yeah. save. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's a common theme that will come up throughout this question is that hypotheticals are bullshit uh, yeah <laughs> um so yeah i mean foot predicted that most people would say without hesitation that the driver would steer for the less occupied track and this tends to be the case when looking at surveys of the question for uh, to people can i say i did not know that that's a very interesting point that he had a prediction for this she. like this god tom <laughs> I'll I'll go now. I'll I'll get the Robin back in and we can... <laughs> although honestly the Robin had similar views, if not worse. Um but um um it's very interesting that she had a intention behind phrasing this problem mm-hmm. as opposed to it being like an equal divide thing. Yes, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, reading this original paper was really interesting because Foot goes on to compare this to other cases. So, mm. uh, the next is suppose that a judge or magistrate is faced with rioters demanding that a culprit be found for a certain crime and threatening otherwise to take their own bloody revenge on five hostages. The real culprit being <laughs> unknown the judge sees himself as able to prevent the bloodshed only by framing some innocent person and having him executed. In both cases, she notes, the exchange is supposed to be one man's life for the lives of five. What do you think? I no longer am having fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't wanna. And we, we will we'll tally our kill count by the end of this, yeah. so we'll know who, who has the most blood on their hands. <sighs> When you put it like in the same thing of like you're choosing the lives of one person or five, like you should choose five. Should you? But the scenario around it where this person is being so morally yeah. wrong to get to that point mm-hmm. makes me want them to not do it. Yeah, I think that's a very good reason. Yeah, whereas with the trolley problem, it feels a lot less like, sure, you're turning the lever, but that feels a lot less morally problematic than. Yes. So that is my stance. I yes. Think. Okay. I I think that that's probably what how yeah. most people feel. Well, I, th- I know it is. Tom. It's harder. I yeah. It, it is harder. Yeah. I agree. I, I mean, again, if I was really in this situation, the answer is probably no, or I mm-hmm. would run away. Okay, but interesting. The context feels really important. Yeah, I might agree with what? Caroline on this. Yeah, uh, and I would agree with both of you that yeah. I wouldn't do it. And and foot also predicted in the original paper that most people find the first scenario morally fine but the second they are morally appalled that an innocent man can Mm -hmm. be framed and she explains this through something called the doctrine of double effect do you know what that is no no i'm sure i learned about it but then i forgot i'm so sorry (laughs) i'm so sorry to my professors so this is a set of ethical criteria that an action which you know will have harmful effects and positive effects is justifiable if the following rules are met. So the nature of the act is itself good or at least morally neutral. The agent intends the good effect and does not intend the bad effect, either as a means to the good or as an end in itself. Mm -hmm. And the good effect outweighs the bad effect in circumstances sufficiently grave to justify causing the bad effect. So in the comparison of the trolley driver and the judge, the tram driver only indirectly intends the death of that one track worker. Um, yeah. And in mm, as a result, mm, saves mm. five, while the judge directly intends the death of the scapegoat. Mm-hmm. 
for also uses the problem as an argument that negative duties, i.e. not taking action for something, often carry significantly more weight than positive duties. So the tram driver faces a conflict between the negative duty not to kill five and the negative yeah. duty not to kill one. But the judge faces the conflict between the positive duty to save, a lo- save the lives of five and the negative duty not to kill one. Can it's, I say, yeah. that's so interesting. That It's so interesting because these sort of like three axioms are a way to like untie the moral knot and like make it make me understand like why i'm conflicted whereas most of the time when we talk about the trolley problem we just like throw this moral knot into the Mm -hmm. void and we're like isn't that so weird yeah 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 you're like oh why did i I do that instead of that but i mean there are reasons and it and it's interesting that they are intuitive to you that this thing that we've put into words is actually more intuitive to you than you realize yeah Right, I was going to say, I, why do we not talk about that more often? Like, that is the as interesting, if not more interesting, than, like, the conundrum is, like, is those things that let us think about why we feel that way. Mm-hmm. I'm just, uh, like, that wasn't in the good place. They didn't talk no, about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's so... Yeah, sorry. It's just, it's just, no, it no. just made me realize that. Like, we, we talk about the trolley problem, and we don't talk about these three moral theories that, that yeah. are sort of almost yeah. the point, right? Mm-hmm. That this is the point of this paper where Foote proposes the trolley problem was not to propose the trolley problem. It was to make an argument for wow. the doctrine of double effect and for positive and negative duties that she just came up with the idea to argue for those things. Yeah really that i mean that's basically like if you wrote a paper and you happened to say use the phrase if only we could talk to a bird and then a podcast ran with that and then not the rest of the paper (laughs) (laughs) so the first person or at least the most famous um to come up with a series of variations on the trolley problem was judith jarvis thompson in uh, two papers Mm -hmm. killing letting die in the trolley problem and the trolley problem And one of them goes like this. The driver of the trolley faints after realising that the trolley's brakes have failed. And a bystander on the ground, understanding the emergency, notices a switch could be thrown to divert the trolley onto the one worker track. What would you do? Oh, in that scenario, like, if I think about how I would legitimately respond in real life, I feel like it it could be so easy to stand and do nothing in that Case? That's interesting. That's you an know? interesting answer. Can I um, say I I'm just realizing. So this is the this is a situation where you you have you like divert the track left or right, or yes. or you choose to divert the track with a switch. This is the canonical version of the meme format, right? Like trolley problem. Are you guys not familiar with the the trolley problem memes Facebook group? No. <laughs> So there, there, there's a, an image of like uh, a, a person with a, a switch and they're like like a, a frowny face person and they have to do it. And so this is the version that like people, if they ever make a meme format for this thing, it's oh, this they version. they have someone standing on the ground oh, pulling a switch. Where, where someone with a switch. And I think the reason why is because the switch is a more visual indicator of like you mm-hmm. turn the switch left or right versus it's harder to tell if you're like in a trolley which way you steer. Um, but I'm just now realizing that that's not that's not the original version that's a specific variant of it and i wonder i think it's interesting that that is the version that is probably more more talked about is that version i think there's a good reason for that um which i can mention once you guys have given me (laughs) your answers tell me will you kill the people (laughs) um i think i would still endeavor to just kill the one person Mm -hmm. but as i said previously i do understand 
how it could be easier to just be a bystander in that scenario yes. and not do anything. Yeah. Yes, that's very yeah. interesting. So obviously in the in the hypothetical, Thompson mm-hmm. predicted that most people would think it was morally permissible for the bystander to flip the switch. Um, yeah. And surveys <laughs> later on showed that this is the case because Thompson argues that there's a standing moral requirement to minimise the harm wherever possible. But according to Foote's mm-hmm. duty-based approach, morally the bystander shouldn't do anything because then you are getting involved. You are you are violating the <laughs> negative duty not to kill one person. Yeah, yeah. It's more like the ju- you're being more like the judge in this case than you are the tram yeah. driver. You're actively yeah. choosing which one to do at that point, aren't you? Yeah. You're you're breaking your Asimov's rules of trolleys. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, and Oh, funny you bring that up. We'll get there. So, oh boy, another really fun variation on this, which you've probably heard, is two bystanders witness the scenario from a footbridge above the tracks. One of them realizes the trolley can be halted by a heavy object and has the choice oh. to push the other person oh, yes. off the bridge and onto the track. I think I can guess, but which one would you do? I would not. No. I would not push the person. <laughs> no. Of course, of course you, you would. And and when asked <sighs> about this scenario, the overwhelming majority of people would not push the person onto the bridge. And this is consistent with Foote's negative yeah. and positive duties. However, if you... This, I found this so interesting. If you change the scenario slightly and the, oh, no. the oh, no. other person is instead standing on a trap door over the track and you just had to pull the lever, significantly Whoa. more people would pull the lever. Wow! Well, at that point, you're like, dude, why are you standing on a trapdoor? <laughs> yeah, you're just asking for this. Rule wow. one of existing in the world. How weird is Stay that? Because to me, That's the trapdoor so... doesn't actually change it. But I guess that level no, of like, not, it doesn't to me that either. Step back changes it for some people. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, is Boris Johnson standing on the trapdoor? <laughs> oh, no. Would I push him off? Would I just, like, ignore the trapdoor and just push him? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would push him anyway. Maybe, yeah. Even if I could pull the lever. Okay, so <laughs> this is still a science podcast, so let's stop speculating on how people might respond in the hypothetical situation. And Are we going to get to some data? Think about how they would respond in an actual situation. Mm-hmm. So amazingly, oh. something similar to the trolley problem has been tested in real life in a scientific manner. So controlled and peer reviewed <gasps> and published. But it wasn't until 2018. Wow. <gasps> oh, wow. I was going to say, what you either have to do is you either have to do it early when it's like Ooh, yeah like, when you can't like, get away we're still with like, it <laughs> yeah when we're still doing like stanford prison experiment stuff or uh-huh. you have to do it late enough that you can come up with like a clever uh, yeah, way, a different way to, to do it exactly do and that's it. what built this is yeah. so this is a paper by boston et al in psychological sciences called of mice men and trolleys hypothetical judgment versus real life <gasps> behavior in trolley style moral dilemmas great title and the authors start like this Scholars have been using hypothetical dilemmas to investigate moral decision-making for decades. However, whether people's responses to these dilemmas truly reflect the decisions they would make in real life is unclear, Mm. which I think is fair enough. Great point. So they set up a study with 200 participants. First, they had to make the hypothetical decision to administer an electric shock (laughs) to five mice in one cage or divert (gasps) the shock to a single mouse in a cage and save the five mice, spare them. Or... They were told they actually had to make this decision and they thought the mice would actually be shocked. They wouldn't be, but they Good. set up a scenario that made it look exactly like this and mice would be shocked. Wow. They got some mice actors. Yeah. <laughs> they, they trained the mice. Ah, oh, oh, it hurts. Oh, I need a cheese break, my God. Thank God for SAG, am I right? <laughs> um, so how do you predict people would react, based on what we've been talking about in the hypothetical situation, 
versus the real that's I mean, so interesting hypothetically if if we remain consistent you i would expect people to pick just going for the one mouse but i don't know if they would follow through on that in real mm -hmm. life yeah this is what yeah, i thought as I well so yeah can I ask, in, in this procedure how is it is it framed like it's gonna go towards the five and you yeah, can divert it's going it is that like the, five the framing and you okay. can divert it and okay well i want to also say what's interesting is is that that this there's also this factor of like a researcher is telling you to do this right which is very interesting or like Ooh, you're that's in a context true. Of, mm -hmm. that's very stand um oh, not what's it called the milgram experiment the, exactly yeah. exactly yeah. yeah um the yeah the authority based thing there is certainly i think an aspect i wonder how they controlled for that actually but um, I don't mm, think it said mm. anything about it. So I think you both predicted... <laughs> they just had a guy on that'd be like, hey, I got a mouse. Come over here real quick. <laughs> you know hey, you Shock this mouse. Hey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you both said they're like, maybe more people would hypothetically divert and maybe yeah. in the moment would be less likely to. Yeah. Possibly out of like, you know, not knowing what to do, not make, being able to make that split right, second right. decision. But... And I thought that too, but it's actually the complete opposite no way around. So way. in the hypothetical scenario, 60% of people would divert the shock. However, when faced with the real mice, 84% of people chose <gasps> to press the button. Get out of the town. And actively no electrocute way. the one mouse. Yeah. That's so... That's well, so interesting. Yeah, I, I thought that was so weird. I was so not weird. expecting that. Yeah. No. Um, huh. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, it goes to show... Like the the whole point is that we wouldn't know what we would do in real life, mm -hmm. and so the idea that like because we don't know, we do know. Like we could sort of like trick ourselves to be like, oh, I don't know what I would do in a real situation, therefore I do know what I would do. <laughs> but like yeah. you know what I'm trying yeah. to say? Like it is a mystery what we would do, and so we can't assume. That's so interesting. Mm. So and it seems from this paper that in real life, when faced with a trolley-like problem people lean more towards consequentialism, so based on a, a larger outcome, than denatological thought, which is argues that it's immoral mm. to act to hurt someone, right? All this mm -hmm. stuff that mm. Foote was saying. But the main study of the paper isn't really about what people would choose. It's really just that people think differently in hypothetical situations yeah. compared to real-life scenarios. Yeah. And the authors of the paper end by saying that hypothetical dilemma research, while valuable for understanding moral cognition, has little predictive value for actual behaviour, and that future studies yeah. should investigate actual moral behaviour along with hypothetical scenarios dominating the field. Can I say, it's so... I feel so fooled because, like, my argument going into this was that, like, this is all hypothetical. In real life, I would do this. But me saying that yeah. is another hypothetical. Yeah, you have no clue. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And so you really have to do it. And so mm -hmm. that's so interesting. It's like the and I mean, this happens all the time in psych where you like read these studies about how like people are like make these silly decisions and you're like, oh, cool. I won't make those. But like the point yeah, is uh -huh. that you, you, you don't know. And so you mm -hmm. have to you have to do these tests. That's oh, yeah. 85 too. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really, it's, it's just such a surprising increase as well. I really wasn't expecting it to increase by yeah. that much. Yeah. I will say that there are limitations to the study. You know, it's hard to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. equate ethically like human death with a mouse receiving a shock. Yeah. And at least some of the participants involved in the experiment did admit that they saw through the researcher setup <laughs> and knew that no animals would be harmed, which I probably would yeah. also in that scenario just based on my 
previous understanding. It's like if someone put me in a, in a mill room. Hypothetically. I mean, hypothetically, <laughs> but almost definitely. Like if someone put me yeah, in a mill yeah. room-like situation now, I wouldn't be my authentic response. It would just be like, I know this isn't real. Do you want to explain what the Milgram study is briefly? Just oh, for okay, yes, of course. No? Very, very briefly. It was an experiment where they put people in a room with a researcher and they had to administer an electric shock to someone they couldn't see but they could hear and they increased the increments of the electric shock up as the researcher told them to until that person was hypothetically being electrocuted to death and you could hear they could hear their screams but the researcher would kept on pushing them and the majority of people carried on because of the effect of having that person of authority telling them to do it uh, but this is a, a whole other thing <laughs> we could we could do a whole episode on this yeah. couldn't we yeah. i was gonna say to your point ella i think it's it's okay right, right the experiment with the mice has flaws but the point isn't about answering the trolley hypothetical. It's about showing the problem with hypotheticals. Yeah. Right? Like, that, yeah. that's the point. Is it isn't to be like, well, well, Miss Foot, here's your answer. The, the point is to be like, this shows we need to approach these problems differently. Exactly. Exactly. That was the whole point. So, <laughs> moving on. So, British philosopher Mary Midgley... Uh, is quoted as saying, the trolley problem is just one more depressing example of academic philosophers' obsession with concentrating on selected artificial examples as to dodge the stress of looking at real issues. So, Mary, let's make this Ooh. a bit more relevant Ooh. to the real issues. <laughs> let's put you on the track, see how you like it, Mary. Yeah. <laughs> and of, of course, the first thing that comes to mind with this, based on other scenarios that you've mentioned, is medical ethics. So, yeah. yeah. I will, before I ask you guys this, I'll just say Foote's um, original paper is actually called The Problem of Abortion and the Doctrine of Double Effect. Oh. No way! Yeah, really? people have just no idea about this. The trolley problem is used to distinguish... Are dist you kidding me? I know, it's crazy. It's used to distinguish between cases in which an action taken to save the life of a pregnant woman results in the death of a fetus. This was obviously very relevant in the 60s when wow. laws were very different. And it certainly feels more relevant than ever. Yeah. Uh huh. I had no idea. Foot poses different scenarios that conflict with Catholic doctrine. So thinking about whether or not intent to harm the fetus or the mother is present and if that really matters. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. not actually going to get into it now because it is quite heavy. Yeah. Um, but it does lead on to how the trolley problem might apply in medical ethics generally. This kind of comes back to some decisions that will have to be made in very recent years. Uh, kind of uh, through like choosing of ventilators for people with COVID. Oh, um, it's not, interesting. It's not quite the same idea, but the idea of like me uh, doctors, medical doctors having to make decisions between patients based on who is more likely to make a recovery or based on resources, like limited number of resources is like very, um, you can see how this starts to become more relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, which I read for the first and time. And the oath says how to answer this question, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. I, it it. <laughs> um, I read it for the Subsection first time. Subsection three. <laughs> oh, did you? I read it first time while researching this. It's very short. I won't read it all, but the, mo the modern version includes lines like, I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science and that warmth, sympathy and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I didn't know that. I will not be ashamed oh, wow. to say I know not nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. Which is, I think is really nice. I didn't realise that was in there. I had no clue. You know, yeah. Hey, you know this Hippocratic Oath thing? It's, it's pretty mm, good, yeah. actually. Starting, starting to trust doctors almost, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do you know what part of the Hippocratic Oath, the very, very famous line 
No. Always steer the trolley. Always, right? always turn the trolley. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, or, thou shall not cause harm or something along those lines. Yeah, first, do no harm. It's a very, ah, very yeah. famous oh. quoted line from Hippocratic Oath. It's not in it. It's not in the Hippocratic Oath. Oh. Just in case anyone was wow. wondering. Huh. Oh. The closest huh. from older versions is I will follow that system of regimen which, according to my ability and judgment, I consider for the benefit of my patients and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. That's very <laughs> different. Mischievous. That's very different. Like I could like some maybe like jank wish.com sparks note might translate it into that but like that's <laughs> very different and, it, and in fact you know many medical procedures it's like necessary to cause harm in some way so first yeah. do no harm is just not gonna work often that's kind of the medical ethic problems section um there is one very pressing issue where the trolley problem might be applicable in real life hey we're gonna uh, hey I just just so I know how revved up I need to be. We're we gonna be talking about self-driving cars, baby. Yeah, baby. All right, <gasps> All right here we go. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I okay. have I have thoughts. Yeah. I was gonna say Tom has opinions. We can already tell. <laughs> uh, that was the question I was gonna ask. Where is it applicable? You know, of course. Um. So okay, some believe the trolley problem has very great application in this in case of self-driving cars. Tesla doesn't produce fully autonomous cars, although they have plans to. Um, right now, if a car is in autopilot, it will automatically brake for pedestrians. And if the driver is in control, the car cannot stop for pedestrians or anything, If it's even if it senses a collision. And some argue that you should be able to take over if it meant not hitting someone. Like, the car should be able to take over. What What do in you think? theory, yeah. I mean, yeah? Yeah. Say if it no one was like going to be harmed. It should be a good thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, if nobody was going to be... Oh, like if they were on course to like colliding with a person, I would rather that was in place than mm -hmm. not in place. Yes, I mean, I think yeah. so. I think that. Yeah, I, really make I that think that's choice. my stance. That the car should be able to take over and stop from hitting someone. Yeah. But now if we bring it around to the trolley problem, so say the car is completely autonomous and a pedestrian runs out into the road, a crash is inevitable. Either the car swerves into a barrier and kills the driver or the car hits the pedestrian and kills them. What do you think the car should do? Ooh. Or, or I guess the real question is, what would you tell the car to do? I think I would tell the car to kill the driver. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. I don't think I have. I, a, think... I don't think I have an, an answer for this one. It's, but part of me is like, oh, I don't know how to phrase it, but like the driver is the one who got into the car, who made that yeah. decision to drive, drove that fast. Yeah. Yeah. Who, yeah. Exactly. Who drove to the point where. If a pedestrian stepped out, he couldn't physically stop, mm -hmm. which obviously is not how you should be driving in a normal society. <laughs> so I would be like, kill the driver. Kill the but driver. It's a really kill the driver. Hard one. Well, yeah. the, the thought that I've heard raised, and I don't know if you are going to bring this up, Ella, but the question then is would you buy that car, Caroline? No, that makes fucking that decision? hell no. Would I not I'm buying a car that could kill me or someone else without me having an input? Well, no, yeah. I meant, or would you buy a car that aims to kill you first oh that's that's an even better way better Ooh. phrasing of that question yeah right yeah i guess no would you I want the car that always saves you but then, you, would i right? rather die or live with the guilt of killing someone though you Good didn't boy. kill them though the car did yeah you wow. yeah, sue elon musk like, straight to hell baby i feel like i got myself into that scenario and therefore, I should be the one to suffer You're the very consequences. Kind. You're very kind. Uh, I, I Tom, don't, what would you do? I, I would be a shit murderer, basically. I'm going to be a I'm fucking. I, I mean, I'm a real wet blanket about this issue. I think. I think to to Caroline's point, in an abstract scenario, I think it is the driver's fault. Okay. But 
my my main contention with this, and I know I'm going to be a pedantic wet blanket, is that <laughs> this isn't how AI works. No, like, this people is people at Tesla. You, this yeah. is completely plenty of like limitations to looking at this question with through with the trolley problem because of course you're right the as as literally as you're saying tom in a real dynamic environment a car will make an ai car will make sequential decisions and what it, what it's well, not going to be black and white i was my what i was going to say is just that like the the idea should just be almost to the the idea of the like fake hippocratic oath of like do no harm the idea is damage mitigation not damage weighing like the idea is you know this you know, logic isn't programmed into the autopilot of planes, for instance, right? Like there's no logic built into a plane that's like, oh, if we hit a bird, we should we should crash, right? It, <laughs> it, it, it The programming is always in service of just trying to be safe in general. And so, mm, I mean, mm -hmm. my understanding is that like these, these things... I mean, I, I think, I mean, ultimately what this comes down to is I think you're right. Like, I think the trolley problem could only serve us so far in in the case of yeah. real like self-driving cars. To, to to your point, when when you mix the trolley problem with medical issues, you you sort of enter this, you get this this stew. And I think when you mix the trolley problem with AI things, you also get this sort of like stew yeah. of like conflating problems exactly, together. Yeah. And sometimes that sometimes that's that's helpful, but sometimes it's it's sort of messy. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, so say, but let's let's go back to the hypothetical for a minute, yeah, and say that we've all made the decision where we're we're killing the driver. Say we would we were able to program that decision into a car, but we can't base that decision just on our three answers. But maybe if we had more data. So in 2018, researchers from the MIT Media oh. Lab published a paper in Nature in which they used an online experimental platform called the Moral Machine to explore the moral dilemmas faced by autonomous vehicles. It gathered 40 million decisions in 10 languages <gasps> from millions of people in 233 countries and territories. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How many decisions? 40 did it? million. Wow. Jeez. So the, oh, it's an incredible sample size, first of all. Mm -hmm. And what is I find particularly interesting about this experiment, one that many moral philosophers don't often address, is that they looked at choices both globally but also individual demographics such as country of residence, age, gender, income, political and religious Interesting. views. Yeah. We obviously obviously don't have time to go through all of these like many nuanced scenarios, but they basically kind of based on what people ended up clicking, mathematically predicted the probability that globally and then in through with individual characteristics which factor was more likely to sway someone to clicking either to stay on course and save the passengers mm -hmm. or to swerve away. What do you think globally the choice was for men versus women? Hitting a man or hitting a woman? Uh, probably. Uh, European Robin, what do you think? Oh, dude. <laughs> of, cor of course you would say that. Wow. Get out no of here. Yeah, why have you, Get why out. Are you still, still here? Him? Get out. <laughs> I feel like people would go for hitting the man <laughs> because of that so idea funny, of like the idea of thinking so about this weird. you're i mean you're right caroline there's a small yeah. preference not a huge preference for hitting uh, men over women or sparing women over men is how it's phrased yeah. um, right. uh, the highest preference goes to sparing humans over animals <laughs> um which also makes sense yeah yeah although people are more likely to spare a dog than a cat 
Rude. They gathered so much data. My God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so much data. Which species of dog, which breed of dog was the most? <laughs> this Labrador is named Springy, and this Labrador is named Brian. It's like, oh, God, I'm sorry, Brian. I'm sorry. Oh, no, Brian. Brian. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to, I was going to kind of ask you this, but just for the sake of time, I'm just going to run through looking at like cultural responses. <laughs> People in the US were more likely to to hit a man than to hit the American flag. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well they're more likely to hit a woman than the American flag. <laughs> <laughs> man, the political cartoon writes itself. <laughs> <laughs> so and there is this kind of argument that the preferences documented by the moral machine can be considered as building blocks for programming self-driving cars, which is why one of the reasons this was done in the uh, the authors talk about or they could at least constitute an indicator for policymakers to consider so for mm. example the german ethics commission on automated and connected driving actually produced a guideline in 2017 on the ethical principles that should govern self-driving cars that's interesting so there's a stipulation for example that humans should be considered more highly than animals and then the number mm -hmm. of people of harm should be reduced and these both align with the answers from the moral machine but the guidelines also say it's prohibited to distinguish between features such as age gender a physical or mental constitution, which how this would actually align with how you program AI is another question. But people do seem to believe yeah. that there is something in policy there. But of course, this is like, there's just a lot of criticism of applying this to the the autonomous vehicles, um, which Tom, yeah. you've already... Yeah, I mean, the main thing I think is that, uh, and this is something I meant to say earlier, is that like, what you're talking about when you think about this is like, you're basically talking about programming target seeking indirectly. Yeah, which that's is yeah. Not, yeah. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is not what we program. We mostly program danger avoidance, and yeah. so yeah. you know the idea. I guess the, that the this is, I guess the question is that yeah. if, if danger avoidance li could lead to the death of the driver, how right. do you? This, I I think well, but I think what's interesting is that this this moral question is happening, but I think it's happening at a much more subtle and yes, I completely bureaucratic agree. level mm -hmm. on the level of like. I mean, like, I, you know, this is an extreme example, but like, hey, how fast do we let these cars drive? Like, that is an indirect, bigger scale trolley problem, but it's 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 less juicy because it's less like, do we yeah, kill I this or this? It's, it, it, it's a longer term thing. Um, that's my thought. And that is it's such an important criticism. And yet this people, a lot of people are still really hung up on the trolley problem in relation to autonomous vehicles. Yeah. The fact that there's like there's a commission in Germany that like spent their time I putting together this that, kind yeah. of like I feel... hypothetical ethical quandary as like a policy mm. I think is probably mm -hmm. was probably a huge waste of their time to be honest <laughs> yeah yeah so we have that issue yeah. we also have the thing that we've already talked about which is how so people respond in hypothetical decisions is ultimately very different to right. how they respond in real life yeah yeah and um, yeah. so I guess that's the end but to finish I just want to ask if either of your opinions on the trolley problem have changed or grown in this time I mean, my thoughts about the actual decision, I don't, is that what you're asking? Because, I mean, my thoughts I about the so. problem itself have changed a ton, yeah. like, in terms of, like, recontextualizing, first of all, the history of it, where it came from, is is so, so, interesting. so interesting. Yeah. I really like the idea of embracing the, the weirdness of the different contexts. I feel like sometimes mm -hmm. when I get when I get into discussions about this, it, it, it so quickly becomes like argumentative. Mm. Like it's yeah, like, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, well what about this? It feels like a gotcha. But I feel yeah. like 
approaching it more from a feeling of like, here's situation A, B, C, D, E, and like being like, why do I think differently about these things and what does that say? As opposed to this being like a, mm -hmm. I don't know, like a BuzzFeed quiz gotcha moment mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. Honestly, because I... I went into this pretty like jaded and annoyed with the trolley problem because of just how often you hear it and it 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 feels so much like a like a like a meme or a gotcha that I'm surprised that taking the time to think about it like this actually makes mm. me like it a little bit more. Yeah. But whilst it also makes me like appreciate it more, I also at the same time value it less. <laughs> Cause like mm, it used yeah. to it, I did see yeah. it as this thing that was like I don't know, I, I it did have some weight in my head before. And now I'm just like, actually, yeah, I completely agree. That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. The context of the history of this changed my, like, knowing that the people who, like, posed the problem, they weren't doing so because they wanted an answer to the problem because they were trying to talk about how to approach morals and ethics, you know, and now mm -hmm. we've just, in, in kind of pop culture, flipped over to this idea of, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Appreciating it more, but valuing it less is very yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's a good line. So, Great way um, to put it, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate it may seem strange that I have, you know, decided to cover a question of, you know, moral philosophy on a science podcast. But oh, I do but think, I think it's, so good. it's important to occasionally reflect on the fact that scientists are humans with human morality. Um, and that will impact the way we approach certain aspects of science and medicine. That's a great point. Including great point. trying to apply and solve problems where there aren't any, like with the self-driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> Put that funding to measuring poops instead, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> end up being a somewhat sciencey miscellaneous topic perfect this so is so interesting balancing yeah. it out. Um, the science of hitchhiking yeah <laughs> well so before we say anything about this topic i'm gonna ask that people try not to google anything about hitchbot specifically before because I, I don't want anybody to like have this story spoiled for them basically the ending okay. is it's a lot <gasps> um, <Whoa>. alien <laughs> Hitchbot turned into a human boy after all at the end. <laughs> spoilers, spoilers. Spoilers. Oh my god. So small The disclaimer. real Hitchbot was the friends we made along the way. Sorry. Don't okay, because that's literally what the ending is gonna be like. It's like oh. another small disclaimer. The original website about Hitchbot no longer exists, which is a real shame. Oh interesting. Um some of the stuff has been saved by Web Archive, but a lot of it has been lost to time. This was in 2014 and 2015. Wasn't even so it that wasn't even that long ago. Yeah. It's so bizarre to say that it's been lost to time about can this. I, can I say I I love in, internet ephemera like that. Yeah. That just because it does make you remember that like if you don't mark these things and if you don't remember and and it makes you remember that lots of these things like live as stories as much as they do as yeah. like physical things on the internet. Yeah. We do have some PDFs saved from the original website, which are obviously going to be in the show notes. But we'll we'll start from the beginning. So can you two guess what Hitchbot? might have been is pretty clear in the name he is a, a little robot that sticks his arm out at the side of a road and then yeah. i don't know about this but this is a, get, a guess based on what i would do and then he has a little message on him maybe he speaks maybe it's just a text that just goes i would like to get here please how far can you take me and then so and then someone picks him up and takes him down the road and then it's like that's as far as he can go and they put him back on the road 
That's pretty spot on, actually. <laughs> it is interesting because yeah. in my mind, I picture like an MIT robot, like a very humanoid ah, robot. I was also okay. pitch- I was also picturing like one of the ones, you know, the MIT yeah. ones that run. The one of the Massimo. Oh, yeah. yeah. But like with a, th- with a thumb. Yeah, yeah. Do you, would you like a photo I, to, of although, Pitch Bar? To be completely honest, I would not trust that robot. I've seen enough videos. <laughs> oh, yeah. He'd murder I, you. I know there's military uh, purposes. No. Can you see how high those things can jump now? He's going to kill you. So. <laughs> I'd also, I expect like they get into the car and they're going to be like, so tell me your social security number and your mother's maiden name and some information about you. <laughs> like, I, I don't trust those, those, those MIT robots know they're narcs. My God. We'll talk about how Hitchbot was conceived. Um, when a mommy a robot mommy and a daddy yeah, robot. Yeah, okay. You got there first. Are you proud of yourself? Yeah. Fact. <laughs> you beat me to it. Happy. So back in 2013. Tom, you're still funny. It's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> don't, don't, don't lie to him like that, Caroline. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, okay. Dear. Okay. So back in 2013, Dr. David Harris-Smith of McMaster University and Dr. Frauke Zeller of Ryerson University, both based in Canada, I do believe, pondered a question. I'm sorry. This was made by two doctors? This yeah. was made by yeah, yeah, yeah. research people? Yeah. I thought this Proper was just like people. a dude. <laughs> I think wow. Dr. Harris Smith is more on the tech side of it, but then Dr. Zeller is more on like the social robotics sphere. Right. But it's wow. Pro- okay. Scientists thought of a hitchhiking robot. Okay. And and they were like, yeah, sure, fuck it. Um. So it initially came from the question, not if humans can trust robots, but if robots can trust humans. Oh yeah. Huh. No. <laughs> based, based on videos I've seen of people harassing the Amazon delivery package robots. Yeah. yeah. I know that robots Although I will say, humans. that's, I'm, how much of that is robots versus Amazon? I feel like. <laughs> Although I did see a video of a woman going up to one of those robots and it's waiting at a crossing and it says, can you please uh, press the button for me? And then Aww. she's, <laughs> and then she does. I, and I he goes, I've thank you. <gasps> My little heart. I, I will also say 2014-2015 is a real interesting time when it comes to robots. I feel like they're less they felt less um Commercial. less of a grim reality like they do. Yeah, exactly. That's actually I mean, uh what's the difference between commercial and grim reality? Literally anyway? nothing. Um, but yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to ponder. And that question, can robots trust humans, essentially became the tagline of this experiment okay mm-hmm. i say experiment in quotation marks because this is often described as a collaborative piece of artwork yeah rather it's, than it's an experiment. definitely more on the art side than the science yeah side, right? definitely and like so many things about this can't be controlled either things like who the robot spoke to who picked it up who charged him in their cars oh, etc charged him that's so it's sweet really nice so-, so this was very much to see like how the public reacted to him and if they would help him hitchhike across Canada, from one side of Canada to the other side of Canada. Oh, was the oh initial I didn't realize it was in Canada. This. Okay, that also it changes starts things. starts in Canada, yeah, yeah. I assumed it was in America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll get that, don't worry. So, um, oh, no. Oh, boy. So what takes. Oh, no. My first little question for you guys is, you're a hitchhiking robot. You're about the size, it was about the size of a six-year-old, so it's quite big. Oh. <laughs> and you need to hitchhike across Canada. 
What do you need? Uh, oh, I can I say this is a what a fun question. I know what a way, to yeah. <laughs> a way to communicate with the people that you're yeah. trying to get lifts from. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a really important one. Yeah, uh, energy. Yeah, yeah. Some something about you that shows that you're like a real thing and not just some random thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mind, a like friendly a, demeanor. Yeah, yeah some yeah. some yeah. Uh, to your point, Caroline, does it need? Charging? Is that a thing? It needs to function? It does require electricity to work. Uh, and the journey across Canada, they had no clue how long this was going to take. So, yeah. Shall, shall I go through some of the features that are mentioned in the one of yes. the early PDF documents Ar- Ar- released about him? Articulating thumb joints <gasps> is definitely... I love is that, that you uh, <laughs> highlighted that. So this is what Hitchbot says. Here's what my family has given me. Oh. Uh, it says, a hitchhiking hand which will never get tired, in brackets, I'm a robot. (sighs) Delightful. So my heart. It says, I can speak and converse. My charm and wit make me a great travel companion. He's basically like an Alexa, but like before (laughs) they could make fart sounds. Um, And it also has sturdy boots for standing and waiting for its next ride. It has boots. Can I say that's a great point? It has little boots. Yeah, because Lord knows those guys can be toppled over. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, other features include things like 3G and Wi-Fi network. Mm, cool. Yeah, alternative energy sources. Oh, okay. So probably does have solar panels then. Um, and when you look at the photos, you can kind of see like where they might be. Um, there's audio and visual capture, social media APIs, speech recognition and processing. Makes and sense. world oh, wow. knowledge in the form of a Wikipedia API. No way. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> this is a lot more involved than i thought it was gonna be because like you could do this with like a doll but like to do it with a robot i'm glad it's like an extensive robot like yeah. it's it's not yeah. just like i a, mean it, it's not just an articulated thought by today's standards it's pretty like basic but i'm sure, sure but like seven whatever years ago feel like having like yeah, a fully functional ago. fully functioning like little okay google yeah, yeah yeah would you like to see a little photo maybe describe him to everybody yes yes please are you gonna send it to us it's on discord oh my oh, goodness <laughs> he's so oh, wow. cute wow they really tried to make him look very friendly they did didn't they yeah oh they like people have signed him where they've picked him up oh. so he's he's like a a cylinder like a glass yeah, he looks cylinder. a lot like a trash can because he's wearing a little trash can yeah. hat yeah yeah um and inside at, at the top he has this led head sort of like a daft punk helmet yeah um and then in the body it seems like i mean the i assume that's where like all the like actual computation is happening there's yeah. just like a black yeah. box basically and then um it does have pool noodle arms and legs they are pool, no- um, pool noodles confirmed yep yep and with with rubber gloves and rubber galoshes they're actually um, gardening gloves i'll have you know amazing (laughs) and uh then to ella's point he has signatures written all around him Mm -hmm. where people i assume have uh yeah that's a really great description and dr harris smith said that he wanted hitchbot to look like somebody had cobbled him together with odds and ends um Mm. such as pool noodles a bucket a cake saver which is what his head is made out of (laughs) garden gloves wellies and so forth the other thing that's noteworthy about this whole thing like why they made it a hitchhiking robot 
was that they wanted to take a robot and place it in a situation you wouldn't expect to see a robot in. <laughs> hey, that's true. <laughs> on the side of a road with a sign saying it wants to hitchhike is pretty unusual oh, to had see a, a little sign. robot. Yeah, it had a sign no. <laughs> so that people would pull over for him. So that's yeah, a and they point. gave yeah. it the ability to process speech and respond, could answer questions, especially about like random topics because it had that Wikipedia API. It could just go off on a little, a bit of a ramble, but that's okay. But who because, among us doesn't yeah. do that? <laughs> when you find your special interest, you're like, oh yeah, you want to hear the Wikipedia page about? <laughs> <laughs> but what humans don't have, Hitbot has, which is commands like Hitchbot, be quiet, or Hitchbot, <clears throat> take a nap, if you wanted him to shut up. <laughs> Did he explain that to people when they picked him up? He's like, if you want me to stop talking, you can tell me to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if... They did. I assume that that's how they programmed mm. him with a little explanation of what he was before they set him off. I do like that, though, because to, 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 you know, as much as we are um, living in the world of, of Hitchbot being a person, to Ella's point, it, they're probably more annoying than not. Like, like, like oh, yeah. no robot today can keep on like a fun conversation. So <laughs> yeah. it may it may feel more like... Um, a friend who has like a lot of special interests that just wants to tell you all about them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But I'm glad I'm glad they made it like that as opposed to um, more quiet. Mm. I guess. Yeah, that, that yeah, makes just it more this interesting. Silent little blob that sat next to you. Yeah. I don't know. That's also, also pretty big. cute. This takes he up is, a seat. He is he is hefty. He's the size of a six year old. That's true. So the fact that they big. made it the fact that they made it big enough to like take up a whole seat means that people have to like be willing to like spare yeah. a whole yeah. seat in their car as well yeah. which is yeah. like another interesting uh aspect mm -hmm. to it so all of the features are installed all of the questions are outlined about why we're putting him out there all of the reasonings are clear it's time to set hitchbot free in the wild its adventure starts on the 27th of july 2014 on the trans canada highway in halifax nova scotia with the goal of making it to Victoria in British Columbia, which mm -hmm. is about, a, it's over a 5,000 kilometer journey. Wow. Howdy. It's quite a hefty one. Mm -hmm. And Servo Magazine has a really nice piece on Hitchbot's Canada adventures. Um, so if anybody wants to go and read a little bit more about it, that's going to be in the show notes. But we don't actually know a lot of the specifics of the journey because he didn't, have any recording software on oh, him that seems like an oversight good. oh wait no well, so it was, i guess it's good it was in, like good for thing. privacy reasons right yeah that's exactly it <laughs> privacy Whatever. he was designed in with privacy in mind um it was another feature basically to make people trust it enough to let it in their car yeah that makes sense yeah i i, I also gotta say it's it's so interesting hearing this from a 2022 lens i feel like we're really we've we have different we're asking very different questions of it and i think that's very yeah. interesting yeah what we did know was a rough location of him they did have a little gps tracker in him and we also know how many lifts he got and how long it took him to make that journey okay so how long do you reckon it took um maybe a month i was about to say a month as well yeah that's a pretty good guess actually it took him 21 days so three weeks okay. to make that journey and how many people do you reckon gave him a lift Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. I, I can't think of how big Canada is. It's pretty big. 
Uh, five hours. I feel like maybe maybe large. one each, maybe one every other day, maybe fifteen. I, that's actually a really good guess. Oh uh, well, I'm not going to guess now. Tom's just did a good guess. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, no, you can just do prices right rules. Just 14. be like, either say one or sixteen. Yeah. Uh, it is a bit higher than that. Shit. It was nine. Oh. <laughs> it was nineteen people in total for this journey. Wow. He got a lift from a range of people. He ended up traveling over 10,000 kilometers because that's sort of what happens when you're hitchhiking. <laughs> Nobody's going in the direct direction you want to go in. So he traveled a really, really long yeah, way. That's a great point. I keep yeah. forgetting. These are people. They're not like doing this yeah. for the experiment. Uh -huh. They're just like... I wonder if any of the people oh, who yeah. picked him up were, like went out of their way to like take him somewhere. Well. <laughs> well. Oh no, During that's not that a adventure. good well. No, it's a really nice well. Oh, good. Um, he got to go to a wedding oh. during this time. <laughs> he also got to visit his creator's family in Toronto. And he even oh. got to sit on Santa's lap during the journey. As in someone <laughs> randomly, it wasn't like the experiment, pe the pe people running it, it was just no. someone was like, let's take you to this wedding. Let's take you to see yeah. Santa. Uh-huh. That's yeah, literally so what happened. Cute. Would you like a photo of him with Santa? Yes. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, here we go. Oh my god. <laughs> He's got such a little happy face. And what would you like for Christmas? <laughs> the invention of the telegram started in the year. <laughs> um, the thing that I really want to highlight from this photo, which it will be in the show notes, I'm sure, um, is that he's covered in even more stickers and pins and a person's tie. He's and got jewelry. some like jewelry, yeah. People really, really liked Hitchbot. They absolutely fell in love with him and they shared his story online. If they found him, they would tweet photos of him. And he became a bit of an internet sensation at yeah, this point. Yeah, I guess point. the social media aspect of this would like definitely influence yeah. that. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure now, I have a bad feeling that if we did this now, someone would steal him <laughs> and do something bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the time, it worked out really, really well to the point where it broke through to mainstream media as well. And the creators of Hitchbot actually credit the positive media coverage when they talk about why Hitchbot was so successful. Yeah. It made mm, people mm. more willing to help him if they saw him. So, one country down, where's next? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Is it the US? Are we going, going across the US? It's not the US yet. It was actually to Germany. Really strange choice. He did Munich all the way around Germany and then Well, back his family's from Germany, so it makes sense. He's yes. Got, he's, got cousins, he's got cousins. He probably did quite well there, I imagine. He did do quite imagine. well there, yeah. He completed that journey in 10 days. During that time, he went to another wedding, was part of a marching <laughs> band in Cologne, hitched a ride <laughs> on a sports car, also hitched a ride with a German rock band called Who's Panda, Oh, had a movie yeah. night with a couple and also just happened to appear on a German talk show. Oh my God. In this time. <laughs> once again, super successful. And once again, the creators attribute this success to the positive media coverage around him. Yeah, I mean, if he was literally on a talk show. What do you think, he, what do yeah. you think they asked you know, him? Tell us about I don't know. Ted Bundy. Yeah. Ted Bundy was born in... <laughs> 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 well, I was gonna, <laughs> what I was going to say is, it, I, what I love about this is, you know, I think, you know, you can be a little cynical and be like, oh, they're just doing it for the blah, blah, blah. But if they are doing it, there's also so much time they're spending traveling and like yeah. lifting this heavy. It's not an easy 
bit. It's like mm-hmm. there's a lot of involvement in it that, you know, you have to bring him into your car. You have to physically drive him. And then yeah. there's probably a lot of time where you're just driving and being like, hey, what are you up to? What? Hey, yeah. tell me about Ted Bundy. A lot of time was we born in 19. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of time being sat there like did i really just pick up a robot and it and it asked me if it could charge you want to bring it to my sister's wedding (laughs) (laughs) so they thought wow that was successful give it go in another country you might be thinking three trips this this a good idea does he make it all the way through this trip yes of course he does he's fine he's absolutely fine he went to the netherlands uh, and a, a very similar story of him having an absolutely fasti- fantastic time trying this on This time clothes. he got married. Yay! <laughs> Went to his own wedding. <laughs> so yeah, he spent his time trying on clogs, getting boat rides, seeing the arts and the culture. Boat rides. It goes really well. Yeah. Boat, boat rides, you gotta be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so a fourth trip is planned for him. They're like, we might as well keep this going. This is now in 2015. He is really, really popular on social media. Why stop? there so where's he gonna go for this trip australia please no. not just not the u.s it's time for the american trip what did they do to him what did you do to him tom <laughs> <laughs> what did you do to my boy <laughs> so this is 2015 so it's about okay. a year after he's been like initially launched he's one year old he's one year old he's still oh my god baby. he's gone missing hasn't he they never found him Oh my god! Someone Let me kidnapped okay. him, and they never found him. I have I have seen his picture on the back of hard drive boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I saw his picture on a floppy disk. <laughs> so once again, they try to get social media interested in his journey, asking people on Twitter what places Hitchbot should like add to his bucket list of places to see. And actually, there's a really great podcast called the Innovation Heroes Podcast. On the episode episode titled Hitchhiking Robots Guide to the Universe, they actually talk to Dr. Zeller and her colleague Lauren Dwyer, who both worked on the project together. And Dr. Zeller tells this really heartbreaking story of the last time she saw Hitchbot. Stop it. At this point, they programmed it. Hitch- I got in a fight with him and I said I hated him. I never <laughs> knew that would be the last thing I said to him. So at this point, they programmed Hitchbot to be able to initiate conversations just to make him a better oh. travel companion. She says that she always had this tradition before leaving him on the road to tap his little head and say goodbye, Hitchbot. And this time, it randomly responded, I think I changed my mind. Oh. He didn't want to go. He did not want to go to America. But go he must. He started off in New England, made his way to Boston, and then made his way to New York, where... I just got to say, by the time we get to the miscellaneous topic, my, like, um, don't anthropomorphize walls have eroded so far down (laughs) now. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) So he goes to New York. He goes on subway journeys. He saw the lights in Times Square. He was ticking off things on that bucket list. And then he made his way to Philadelphia, where researchers lost contact with him. He was later found, not far from a popular tourist attraction, pretty much completely dismembered and missing his head. Oh my god! Fucking hell. Uh, if you want to <laughs> Google images of Hitchbot, you're now welcome to, because a lot of the search image oh, no. results immediately oh, are just no. his little, his sad little body. Autopsy is the first, Hitchbot autopsy yeah. is the first search <laughs> that comes up. <laughs> oh no. 
It's a pretty sad sight, isn't it? Why are people... Man, there's a reason it's always sunny in Philadelphia is set there. <laughs> Sorry if you're from Philadelphia. So yeah, that was, that was the fate of Hitchbot. People in Philadelphia, especially people who worked with robots, did offer to try and help fix him, mm. but they thought that he was We just can too rebuild him. We can make him stronger. <laughs> you can fight back. <laughs> Sadly, no. Hitchbot was too damaged to be fixed. And they actually never found the people who did this to Hitchbot or his head. So his <laughs> assailants are still out there's there. A, there's a GQ article. The headline is, Cruel Americans Murder Friendly Canadian Hitchhiking Robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, last, the last word is really important in there, the robot yeah. part. <laughs> so there's obviously a lot of hurt feelings online after Hitchbot's death. And actually, there's a really fun paper, fun, interesting paper released in 2017 titled how do we feel when a robot dies emotions expressed on twitter before and after hitchbot's destruction you know that is interesting huh how do we feel when a robot how how do we feel about it they concluded that whilst there were a few cross-cultural differences in the sentiment towards hitchbot there was a significant negative emotional reaction to its destruction Mm -hmm. suggesting that people had formed an emotional connection with hitchbot and perceived its destruction as morally wrong, which is pretty strong feelings there about the little robot. Which is good. I would, well, yeah, I feel like, I feel like, you know, we, I don't want, (laughs) as much as we're joking of this being like, uh, this is the problem with, uh, oh yeah, America. I don't. I, yeah, um, the Philadelphia, I'm sure, is fine. Uh, there's no. Oh yeah, <laughs> I have no. Great actual, music scene. I have no resentment against anyone in America or. Um, well, that's. I mean, that's not yeah. entirely true. Well, for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for this reason. In regards to Hitchpot, yeah. Yeah, and like it could have just as e- easily happened literally anywhere else in the world, and I think Hitchpot yeah. got very, very lucky. Oh uh, yeah, he made honestly, it, on it, I don't as far think, as yeah. he did. Yeah yeah, 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 for sure. So. The last thing that I want to talk about is why it, like, matters. Mm -hmm. Why does Hitchbot's success matter? Why does his failure matter? And to have this very brief conversation, I want to talk a little bit about social robotics. I'm not going to talk too much about it, because I want to talk about it at some point in the future as a main topic. I have beef against Sophia the robot, and I have to get it out there (laughs) another time (laughs) according to the international journal of social robotics it's the study of robots that are able to interact and communicate amongst themselves with humans and with the environment within the social and cultural structure attached to its role so hitchbot Mm. is a very very early example of a social robot and the way that people responded to him sort of brings about the question about how humans are going to respond to social robots in the future particularly things like robots that are used in healthcare Mm. and stuff like that, where Mm. a lot of people Mm. believe that the deployment of social robots to provide healthcare needs will allow patients to be seen much quicker. Yeah, that's a good point. People want to deploy social robots to tackle loneliness, both in Earth-based populations, but also for things like astronauts going out on long missions. You know, they give elderly people... Uh, they give elderly people like uh, robotic cats to keep yeah. them company, yeah. oh. like people, like w- people with dementia and stuff. And apparently, or like uh, f- or like uh, robot uh, babies to look after. Yeah, and apparently, yeah. that really helps with like mental health and stimulation. Uh huh. Hmm. And those would all count as social robots by hmm. that definition. Hmm. Um, and actually, even things like 
those Amazon delivery robots that we talked about earlier could to yeah. an extent be classed as social robots because they do ask for help yeah. and we do kind of anthropomorphize them in that way. I'm like, oh, cute robot is stuck in a ditch and asking for help to get out. Lovely. But I think what happened with Hitchbot is really, really interesting when you think about like how to create a robot that isn't going to get damaged too much by people on purpose. Mm-hmm. And Hitchbot really highlighted some ways to achieve that. Having positive social media coverage seems like a huge thing mm. to get mm. people on side. Uh, making the robot appear non-threatening and even the guarantee of privacy could be like super beneficial for these sorts of robots. But I, do, I just think it's really, really interesting that they did this experiment and actually it, it worked mm. and it worked really, really well. Yeah, it's, it's mostly success and, they, and there, was, there was a critical failure, but it's also like, you know, it's a, it's a learning point still. I mean, we all die, yeah. you know, it's, all, yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of time. It happens, right? But using stuff that Hitchbot has taught us to like a lesson that in the future is also potentially quite useful. So I think the Hitchbot thing, even though it had a very sad ending and it's quite fun really, but it still is useful in the grand scheme of things. Um, so that was all I really wanted to say about social robotics. I think it's a really interesting thing to ponder. For me, I think one of the most interesting things about this is, I mean, I guess it, it's, it goes without saying that like the social side of the social robotics changes so much year to year. Yeah, yeah like, definitely. Ima- envisioning a Hitchbot in the year 2000, in the year 2010, and then in the, in the year 2020 feels like completely different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. And I think that's... I mean, it's just surprising because because mm-hmm. you would think that that I mean, you know, in 2010, I'm sure when Hitchbot came out, we all thought that that was going to be the end all be all about our opinion on robots. But it, it's clearly been very flexible. And I mean, I think that that's almost Hitchbot's point, which is that like yeah. with with media, there is a way to talk about it in a way that might actually that, that can be friendly and can be positive. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea that the the social side of the social robotics can change and be so fluctuating. Yeah. Um, it's as much the social side as the robotic side. Yeah. And like when I was thinking about this, I was a bit like in a post COVID world, would Hitchbot even happen? Like, would people even be willing to pick up a robot off the side of the road? I mean, I would, but... I possibly would too. <laughs> but I have a wedding I need a guest. I need to take to I want to leave this on a, on a really nice quote from Cybo magazine that I mentioned earlier, which is, although the future is unknown, one thing is for sure. Whilst he was exploring, he showed that nearly all humans are willing to assist someone in need. Whilst he needed help travelling, people stopped, loaded him into the car and took him as far as they could. Hitchbot may be broken now, but his spirit and message will continue to live on and resonate for many generations to come. And that's what this is doing. Hopefully teaching more people about Hitchbot. We love you, Hitchbot. Um, We love you, Hitchbot. Wherever your head is. Yeah. (laughs) If anybody does know anything about the the robot head. Yeah, that's the other thing. We're actually going to turn this into a serial-style podcast where we try to find Oh, my God. That would be so good. (laughs) This case was cold until now. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun. Oh, I'd love that. That'd be so funny if somebody actually did find his head like 10 years later. Somebody must still have it, right? I mean, they probably would have. Just like on a shelf I would have thrown it out by now if I was them. (laughs) Maybe after the Interesting you say that, Ella. Hey, Ella, where were you in the year 2015? Gosh. (laughs) You seem to have an awful lot of opinions about Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I can think is is just um being at a wedding with Hitchbot and they go does anyone have any objections and then just in the background you hear 
the Mississippi River is the longest river in the United States. <laughs> Ted Bundy was active between. <laughs> it's always Ted Bundy. Why is it key? <laughs> That's fucked. <laughs> goodness would you look at that Whoa, what's that what do you it? see it coming I, oh I think it's so. review oh. Connor. Whoa. whoa what a surprise coming at the end of the show what a what great timing that's amazing, amazing. so wow. thoughtful of review I was corner <laughs> One day it's going to show up in the middle of the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like so it's halfway through the question. I'm like, what's Review Corner oh, doing here? Like, come hold on. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold on. Do you see that? It's Review Corner. <laughs> <laughs> Could you come back later? Oh, goofy. Uh, so today's review comes from LSCH04. And they say, perfect podcast. No notes. Yeah. Uh, except they do have a note. Oh. <laughs> uh, they say, some nonfiction podcasts are incredibly specific deep dives that leave you hanging after each episode. This podcast is not one of these, and I love it. The hosts bring to the table any random topic they find interesting that week with an infectious enthusiasm. We get oh. to listen in on conversations between the most supportive, nerdy friends you could imagine. <laughs> this podcast makes me so happy. And then crying emoji. Oh, <laughs> we are your supportive, nerdy friends. <laughs> and, and now we're all crying. Yay. Thank oh, you so really much. Nice. That's so, Thank so you. sweet. Yes. And if you want to leave a little review, you can go to Apple Podcasts. And we appreciate it very, very much. Um, do you all have any plugs or shout outs? I would like to shout out the let's learn everything website and discord server Woo -woo. Whoop. uh you can find all of the links at let's learn everything pod.com i would like to shout out all three of us you can find tom at tom Lomp person on all platforms you can find caroline at caroline the bug on all platforms and you can find me at dr big science energy on tiktok and ella hubbard on twitter Woo. so today we oh hold on sorry the robin's back um what's up oh you brought you brought this this message. What what's this what's this letter? Hold on. This is really hold, dumb. Hold yeah, I hate this. Hold on. This is. <laughs> uh, the Robin seems to have brought us some pretty pretty big news about the podcast. Um, I don't think we can have time to talk about it today, but hopefully next time you hear this show, um, we'll be able to share some pretty pretty big news. Yeah, maybe there'll be a Ooh. pretty big pretty big announcement coming up soon. Maybe Just... something a little. <laughs> We're all turning into mice. <laughs> That's, That's the announcement. The announcement. <laughs> so, uh, today we learned about the mysteries of magnetism and all the questions we still have to answer. We learned the true history of the trolley problem and all its variations. And we learned about the journeys and all the Wikipedia fun facts that Hitchbot uh, taught us about. And you can join us all next time where we will learn about everything. Let's Learn Everything is independently produced and hosted by Ella Hubber, Tom Lum, and Caroline Roper. Editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lum. Charlie's taking the question topic today. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Was that him? He makes like um he just his noises are so human like it's very odd. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
I can translate. Uh, Charlie's question is, uh, why no food today? Hungry. I'm starving. Human starving. Why no food yet? <laughs> why no scratch bed? Scratch other things. Why not scratch bed? <laughs> God then.